well, you know, again, I, I do hope to keep this informal and and I would encourage discussion. So I'm really going to try not to talk, go on, and I'm not going to drone on for, for hours here. Um, the title of the, the talk may be slightly misleading. After I sat down to kind of flesh out some ideas, I realized that I'm returning to the work that I've done, you know, um, as an example of one, you know, set of approaches to cultural history and diplomacy and foreign relations. Um, but so... And there's a natural tendency in these kinds of situations, too, for I think I sort of feel an obligation to make profound oracular pronouncements about the state of the field and what people should and shouldn't do and that sort of thing. So, you know, I'll try not to I'll try to resist that urge. But um, forgive me if I if I do if I do very much of that. Um, I also want to say that I'm really pleased to be here. I mean, I've, I've already commented to several of you that I'm impressed with the level of support that the institution provides for its students, and, and I think this is a really kind of wonderful opportunity. Um, I also find it very flattering, I mean, you know, to be invited and, and in the company of my people who preceded me this year as well. Um, so, you know, congratulate yourselves on, on what your institution is doing for you. It's, it's really very impressive. Um, so, I don't know how many of you are aware of the kind of the debates that raged around the whole question of really of the legitimacy of diplomatic history, uh, or, I mean, of co the cultural approach to diplomatic history. I mean, this really was a matter of some sound and fury a few years ago, um, and some of that is perhaps evident in the, in the piece that I had you read, the diplomatic history kind of commentary piece. Um, I'm happy to report that my sense is that, that those storms have generally subsided. And um, my sense is that, I mean, the fact that I'm here today, actually, at some level, I think, is evidence that, you know, there has been a, a real openness to these kinds of things in diplomatic history within the last few years. There's been a lot of really good work that's been done as well, I mean, which, of course, is, um, I think, an, an important part of the, the way that this this whole debate went. Um, ultimately, it may be graduate students who kind of decided the issue by voting with their feet, as it were. Um, so what I'm going to do, I guess, is kind of talk about, I'll make a few sort of generalized pronouncements about the kinds of things that we get out of diplomatic history. I think, actually, the stuff that I've had you read uh, is perhaps somewhat more focused on those kinds of questions. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about where I see the historiographic, I mean, some of the historiographic implications for the material out of the book that I had you read. I mean, what does it tell us that could potentially be useful um, in understanding American history, the history of an era and its relation to American foreign policy? Um, well, so I think a lot of cultural history, the stuff much of the material that I'm most interested in often attempts to explain why and how seemingly rational processes of decision-making and political interaction can often lead to apparently irrational or self-defeating outcomes. So I think there, in many cases, tends to be a kind of subversive, in a sense, a subversive sort of twist to a lot of cultural history. And then it's really questioning categories that are in, in other forms 
in, in other genres of, of diplomatic history, taken for granted. So, I mean, it, I see it as a fundamentally kind of, um, I mean, it's subversive in a sense, intellectually subversive. Um, so in my book, I looked at class and gender socialization among American political and foreign policy elites in an attempt to explain the decision to conduct a prolonged destructive war in Southeast Asia. In the absence of almost any tangible economic or strategic interests as kind of traditionally construed. So I saw that was, that was the thing that really animated, that was the, the motor that, that propelled me through this project. Um, as it turns out, you know, I wound up learning a lot of other things too that I think are, are um, important. Um, and that have, again, other implications outside of diplomatic history. Cultural analysis also allows us to think in new ways about causation in models of social and political interaction. So certain kinds of cultural analysis help us to disaggregate differing interests and motives of states, of agents of the state, and of other political actors. Um, I mean, the whole question of what national interest might be is, I think, really one that, I mean, there's a lot of room for some smart work to be done engaging that question in a systematic way. Um, I, I recently, you know, taught Melanie McAllister's book uh, on it, her book, Epic Encounters, which talks about, at some level, she talks about how interests are part of a process. I mean, they're constantly constructed and reconstructed, this question of national interests. And I don't think she answered the question. I mean, she didn't give us a, you know, a definitive kind of answer about this, but she certainly pointed in an interesting direction. Um, so another approach that's been, I think, in fact, for a while, it was, the, it was the way that people who were critical or skeptical about cultural history characterized the field as a whole, um, was to talk about the way that certain scholars emphasize language to the exclusion of other kinds of, of issues. So in other words, you know, the, the idea that we can... Um, focus on a close reading of language that's employed by agents of the state, by statesmen, by bureaucrats, by others, in order to deconstruct their assumptions about gender, race, and class as a means of understanding the origins of policy is, I think, I mean, it's, it was a necessary and a fruitful step. I certainly don't think it's the, that we should see that as um, the only way to do a cultural history of politics or of diplomacy. Um, I mean, that approach is, can be very fruitful, and I think, again, it's a kind of a natural outcome um, because it is, in fact, contextual assumptions that frame one under, one's understanding of the world that are embedded in the language that one uses to describe the world and to persuade others of the correctness of one's actions. So, you know, I mean, there's, a, there's an intrinsic sort of logic to this sort of approach. But I think in a lot of cases, it's also possible to do a cultural analysis, even in, in, so for instance, in my case, a gendered cultural analysis, by recovering really concrete institutional histories that have been 
overlooked or otherwise erased from dominant narratives. So, in fact, that was my strategy in these Lavender Scare chapters uh, of, the, of my book, Imperial Brotherhood. In the course of my research on these networks of patronage, patronage and privilege among establishment elites that I kind of begin the book, you know, that, I mean, that's the strategy I used at the beginning of the book. Uh, in the course of doing that, I encountered these accounts um, of this era during the 19th, early 1950s, especially, I mean, the, the incident that really stood out was the, the nomination of Charles Boland to become the ambassador to the Soviet Union um, by, you know, an Eisenhower appointment or an Eisenhower nomination that then ran into enormous trouble from the congressional right wing. It became clear to me that the accounts that I was reading, many of, many of them were first-hand kind of memoir-type accounts. Um, it was clear that they concealed more than they revealed about the real political import of that episode. And it also became clear that gender and sexuality provided the grounds upon which that battle was fought. Um, so in the course of my own you know, thinking about this, there, there were two scholars neither of which were diplomatic historians, by the way, and I think there's a, sort of, there's a real lesson there that we might want to talk about later. Um, but anyway, there were two scholars that had done really important work that allowed me to begin to put the pieces together. Uh, I mean, in other words, they gave me clues and, and a, a kind of ground to work from that, uh, that facilitated the whole investigation. John D'Amelio, who is actually a gay historian, I mean, you know, he, he wrote... He wrote from that perspective to that end. I mean, he really was a historian of sexuality and, a, and a, an activist, a kind of gay historian who was interested in writing a narrative that talked about the origins of gay liberation. So his book actually wrote back into the historical narrative the very existence of this purge, this government purge, which had, I think, as far as I can tell, had essentially disappeared. Uh, I mean, and there's some ironies there that we'll talk about briefly a little bit later. The other scholar was Elaine Tyler May, whose book, uh, Homeward Bound, helped me understand the ways that sexuality helped construct Cold War culture and politics. So, you know, I think that book was 1988. Really, I mean, you know, since then there have been sort of revisions of Elaine Tyler May that I think are important and useful and so on. But nonetheless, the, I found that piece of scholarship really fundamental in kind of putting together a cultural understanding of the role of gender and sexuality in this context. Um, so then, through a process of digging in State Department archives, presidential libraries, FBI records, uh, many of which, many of these records had really only been recently declassified. Some were actually the product of Freedom of Information Act requests that I made. Um, and some, I might add, of those Freedom of Information Act requests from the 1990s, I still haven't had an answer on. So um, there, there's a you know sort of element of frustration and that's kind of built into this process. But nonetheless, I was able to recover a detailed history, I think, of the workings of that homosexual purge. Um, and uh, there, I think you know my account is really the first that, that gives us kind of an insider's look at the way that. That, that sexual inquisition operated. Um, so my efforts in this focused on 
the implications that this purge had for the foreign policy elites of the era. My goal was to show the, well, I shouldn't say my goal, but the result ultimately was to show the inseparability of the politics of sexuality from the mainstream national politics that is, I think, the traditional subject of diplomatic and political historians. Um, so what was especially fascinating to me in this process was recovering a part of this American history that had been largely erased from dominant narratives. You know, the, the standard kind of narrative of the McCarthy era was that this was a witch hunt directed at communists or communist sympathizers, that the motivations for this, for this um, you know, political, this purge was focused entirely on on anti-communism or, or related kinds of political, you know, I mean, there is some room for a related kind of political opportunism as motivations for this. Um, what's ironic is that at the time, you know, a contemporary who was a reasonably alert newspaper reader surely would have been aware of the existence of a really widespread purge of homosexuals in Washington, D.C., uh, I mean, I mean, there was extensive newspaper coverage. Um, there was a, a slight effort to protect the sensibilities of, you know, uh, the innocent, I guess, by resorting to a thinly veiled kind of euphemism. But in other cases, it was, you know, I mean, the, the phrase, the purge of the perverts, um, really was in pretty common um you know, it was, it was in common use at the time. So, so you know, there's a certain irony, right, that, I mean, the complicity of both the perpetrators and the victims was necessary to, to affect the erasure of this um, aspect of American history and American political history. Um, they were also aided in that by the process of security and especially privacy classifications. Uh, you know, I mean, a system of secrecy that um, that involves classifying certain materials as inaccessible due to due to privacy. And uh, you know, I have some ideas or some thoughts about the implications of that that I, I don't think I'm going to pursue right now. But if you know, it's certainly something that we could discuss later. Um, but so so for almost for almost 50 years. Um, you know, the really sort of the detailed inside look at this story has been obscured for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, some conceptual as to say that without a kind of analytical language of gender um, that was really a product of the feminist movement of the 70s, 80s, and, and since then, um, scholars didn't have a sort of a set of conceptual tools that, that made that story very accessible. Part of it is, again, the complicity of the participants. They simply, you know, were, um, you know, it was seen as a, a kind of shaming thing, an embarrassment. Um, there were political consequences that were potential, even, you know, in retrospect. Uh, and so, so that story was largely erased. Um, but I think by recovering it, it, it changes the historiography, and, and it should change our understanding of the McCarthy era in some fairly basic ways. Um, as one reviewer of my book has put, quote, put it, quote, after reading Imperial Brotherhood, it's virtually impossible to relegate sexuality to a terrain beyond or separate from so-called real politics, end quote. 
And um, I think she's right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I really think that you can't, that you can't, you know, make that, make that distinction. And, and I, of course, I think we see evidence of that, you know, today, obviously, um, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment as well. Um, so I think that this cultural history of elite masculinity during the Cold War um, is part, actually, of a, you know, a kind of revisionist moment that's emerging about about the McCarthy era. There have been several other scholars who have done work that, again, they're not diplomatic historians. In other words, the questions that, that animated their, um, you know, animated their studies were somewhat different from the ones that propelled me into this. But the interesting thing is, is, is the extent to which the, you know, the, the stories that, that each of us are telling reinforce each other in, in fairly profound ways. So um, there's another gay historian, David K. Johnson, who's recently, uh, last year in fact, came out with a book from Chicago called The Lavender Scare. And it's a, and it's a very detailed look at um, you know, this homosexual purge and its implications in particular for the gay community. So in other words, he's looking at it from a rather different perspective, um, not so focused on the high politics that were connected to this, but, but very focused on the effects of this purge uh, on the gay community in Washington, D.C. in particular. But on the other hand, he's also you know, addressing some really significant political questions in ineffective ways. Um, the other book that, or I should, well, one other book, and one that I think is really very important. I mean, it's so important that I had to bring a copy along, and I'm plugging this book. Um, you know, I'm recommending it to you. Kyle Corleone. Uh, it's called Manhood and American Political Culture in the Cold War. And for anyone who really wants to get, I think, a deep understanding of the obsessions and the, the sort of gender context that framed American politics during this era, um, this is an absolutely indispensable book. I mean, it just came out a few weeks ago. She did have a piece in the American Historical Review, I mean, uh, Journal of American History. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. J um, September 2000, I think, something like that, uh, which is a kind of a pricey uh, of this book. But, but this is a remarkable book. It's really quite a brilliant synthetic analysis of... Uh, of, of rhetoric, of political rhetoric. So it's a very, I mean, it's a book that, that is quite odd in some ways in that she really uses almost no archival sources. This is not a, this is not a book that's based on digging through, um, you know, government documents or manuscript sources. But there's a real logic to the approach that she took. I mean, she's talking about the public, the, you know, the, the, the kinds of discussions that happened in, American political life during this era, and she does a masterful job, I think, of, uh, of engaging these things and really telling us what they mean. So um, let me recap for a minute, you know, what kinds of arguments I've made and, and talk a little bit about um, the, the, again, sort of the implications or what, how we should see this as part of larger patterns in American history and talk very briefly about kind of the ultimately the historiographic implications of this. So um, 
I argue in this, in this book that the McCarthy era lavender scare and the accompanying sexual inquisition was a central element in the high politics of the era. It represented a public, I mean, pardon me, it represented a political struggle waged by provincial conservatives against an international establishment who largely control, or against establishment elites who largely controlled U.S. foreign policy during the early Cold War. The primitives, as Dean Acheson referred to the provincial counter-subversives, rhetorically pathologized communism as a sexual disorder, and they pathologized sexual disorder, or they referred to sexual disorder as a political pathology, right? So there's kind of symmetry to their approach. Right-wing congressmen, in alliance with secret policemen like J. Edgar Hoover and others, institutionalized the sexual inquisition and purge directed at the State Department and other federal agencies. The control and selective deployment of sexual secrets became a weapon used to destroy the careers of political, oper- uh, political opponents in the foreign policy bureaucracy and to generally discredit the Truman administration and the legacy of the New Deal. The purge of homosexual employees of the federal government was numerically much larger than those accused of purely political offenses. Based on the evidence I could recover from the archives, and this is not necessarily, you know, the the whole story, but it's the best I could do, it looks like the number of State Department employees fired for perversion was roughly double that for all of those fired for all other offenses during the Truman administration, and the proportions were much greater during the Eisenhower years. So, you know, that would include alcoholism, you know, other kinds of security offenses against security that uh, were not directly political. The impact on public opinion was disproportionately large as well. So according to the Truman administration internal memos from 1950, and this is based on some journalistic accounts as well, three-quarters of the letters from the public to Joe McCarthy expressed, quote, shocked indignation at the evidence of sex depravity, end quote, while only a quarter were excited about red infiltration of the government. The homosexual panic, panic and sexual wish hunt mirrored the anti-communist inquisition in form and function, but wasn't identical with it. So my findings, and actually those of David Johnson, Kyle Cordelione, and another scholar, Landon Storrs, who's been worked on some of these kinds of related questions, demonstrate that the politics of the McCarthy era cannot be fully understood without reference to gender and sexuality as a component of a larger kind of culture war that prefigures the kind of politics we're experiencing in the U.S. today. Just as in 1952, Republican hacks with the assistance of J. Edgar Hoover targeted Adlai Stevenson in a campaign of rumor that labeled him a sex deviate, in 2004, a Republican hack acting in the guise of a Fox News journalist labeled John Kerry a metrosexual. And, of course, actually there are a lot of other sort of this kind of homosexual talk, uh, you know, labeling Kerry a homosexual. Um, that's merely one example of this kind of discourse. Um, so, actually, and in, in at lunch we were talking about this, the symmetry is now absolutely perfect. Um, not only do we have uh, an administration dedicated to posing as global tough guys, but news reports also tell us that President Bush, in the course of chastising Vladimir Putin for the crimes of Stalin a few days ago, also resurrected the myth of Roosevelt's sellout at Yalta. So, 
all these, you know, the, the package is now complete. We've seen, you know, all these themes recycled. So when we look at the current politics of fear, it's immediately obvious that the moral values discourse wielded by the Republican right is a profoundly gendered construct with anxieties over sexuality and gender roles used to generate support for or sometimes mere acquiescence in policies that undermine the economic interests of the majority of Americans. Often in journalistic discourse, that history has been written as if the conservative backlash of the last 25 years originated as a reaction to the cultural upheavals of the 1960s. But it seems to me that the new history of the red and lavender scares demonstrates that this kind of cultural politics was prefigured during the McCarthy era, and even then, it really just represented one more iteration of a discourse that had appeared during the first Red Scare in 19, 1919 and 1920. And, of course, we can sort of see echoes even farther back in time as well. Um, not, not quite as clear-cut, but... So then, as now, conservatives construed patriotism as synonymous with a particular kind of heteronormative sexual orthodoxy, and the unorthodox, who were at the time called perverts, were represented as a threat to social order and to the state. A fully institutionalized sexual inquisition was deployed for politically opportunistic reasons under the rubric of security. Today, politicians deploy a rhetoric of family values and seek a constitutional amendment to, gay, gay, to ban gay marriage for very similar purposes. There's a striking symmetry, too, in the rhetorical construction of threats to society. During the Lavender Scare, communism was paired with homosexuality in a dialectic of external and internal dangers to the state. Today, an even more amorphous but perhaps more racialized terrorism stands in for that threat of for the absent threat of communism. In both cases, the reaction against the liberalized pleasure consumption model of sexuality has been a rearguard action. Certainly by the onset of the Cold War, the sexual behavior of most Americans bore little resemblance to these idealized family value to this idealized family values model. And that explains the alarm with which Alfred Kinsey's report was greeted by conservatives at the time. And of course, the, the capitalist commodification of sexuality and sexualized entertainment was already far advanced trends that have only accelerated in the intervening decades. So in sum, I think this new body of work, of which my book is one part, revises the story of the Red Scare in really significant ways. The traditional narrative focused on anti-communism as the motor of the Red Scare persecutions and erased the homosexual inquisition and purges almost entirely. The new work on gender and sexuality demonstrates that this story is much more complex than that simpler model. Um, I think it shows us that we really have to take account of these, of this question, of the, of the, of, well, I think it shows us that notions of popular, proper gender and sexual order are fundamental constituents to social order, and thus they're inherently political questions. Um, human societies, I think, actually are quite flexible in their ability to make these adaptive changes to gender roles. So I don't think so I think that, you know, at some level, these questions are, are um, about, about the dangers to identity and self, right? I mean, that's why they're so resonant in, uh, in, in political life. That's why they're, they function so well 
as ways of mobilizing constituency in ways that actually, again, may often um, work directly against the, the sort of measurable economic interests that those constituencies actually have. So um, I think I'll, I'll end it there and kind of open it up to any sort of discussion that we can come up with. Or is open to questions or comments? Well, you hinted tantalizingly, I guess, at other similar instances earlier in American history. Could you talk about this? I mean, you mentioned the Red Scare in the early 20s. Oh, sure. The, the discourse. You go further back than that. Well, I mean, there have been, you know, a variety of kind of anti-nativist. Um, I mean, you know, there's a traditional sort of argument, I guess, that suggests that communism is inherently, um, because of its threat to property, um, when women are essentially considered as property, then women are seen as potentially, um, uh, you know, collective property. And, and, you know, if you look at the history of... Um, well, you know, the sort of 1870s, and, you know, the Haymarket period and others. I mean, that kind of rhetoric emerges at that point. I mean, it's less, it's less, um, it's not institutionalized fully in the state itself, I think, in the same way. But what I'm saying is that we see these kinds of echoes recurring again and again and again, where, again, and it, and it has to do, I think, with simply the fact that, that the gender and sexual order is a fundamental constituent of social order. And as a consequence, it's a political question or a political problem. I mean, people and people are invested very in, in, in very immediate ways in the outcomes of those kinds of um, well, what things that are seen as a threat to that established order, or, or I think internal, or they're they're internalized in a way that other kinds of more abstract abstract questions about you know, the distribution of resources or the deployment of power abroad, those kinds of questions don't have the same emotional resonance that, that these do, which is why they're so powerful. I mean, they don't, make, they don't always make sense, you know. And, I mean, it's hard for academics, I think, to, to, to see how these things fit together. But I think we have to come to grips with the power, the emotional power of... of you know, these basic concepts of gender and sexual order in society and how they, they get sort of deployed in really perverse ways, actually, a lot of times. Yes? You referred to, but didn't really get into a lot of details, you referred to your thesis about the relationship between these values and the escalation of the war in Vietnam. Uh, obviously, as you know, the general literature on Vietnam doesn't see it that way. These critical decisions, uh, I think August 64, February 65, July 65, are not made for these, with an idea for these constructs, but they're made in a national security context. Uh, can you, looking at that specific escalation, give us some more specific details to show us exactly how there is a correlation between these gender-based values and the decision to escalate? Well, you know, sure. I mean, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not arguing that somehow gender caused Vietnam. I mean, that's not at all the logic or structure of the of the of the argument that I'm trying to make. But at the same time, if we look at the way the the decisions were posed, 
the way or the way the debate, the ostensible debate at least, say in the in that um, you know 65 set of decisions. What you see is that there's a great deal of talk about credibility. Um, there's a great deal of talk about prestige. There's some talk about honor. There's almost no talk about any kind of really measurable, tangible kind of power or, or you know, either economic or military issues that are literally at stake in Vietnam. And so, and so there's a kind of psychology that talks about the necessity to back up threats with force. I mean, that was sort of the logic of that escalation, right? Now, one can argue that that has to do with national security, but, but you know, in other words, that that's, that was, but, but what is national security? I mean, that's, there's another layer to the question that needs to be kind of peeled away. I mean, what are the things that make a nation secure? And these guys are suggesting that, that um, I mean, at the, at the level that they're addressing the argument to each other, they're suggesting that honor, credibility, and prestige are the key questions. They're also thinking about, you know, what are the political consequences for me, you know, as uh, either a member of the national security bureaucracy who, who fails to go along with the wishes of my superior, um, or at another level, you know, people like Lyndon Johnson are thinking, you know, what was the fate of the Truman administration? Um, when the you know they got embroiled in when they lost China you know in, in essence I mean so you know those that kind of language pops up all the time I mean you've seen the you you actually told me you've been working with the Johnson telephone conversations right yeah. and I find them quite fascinating because on the one hand he he actually says to uh, you know to Richard Russell. You know, I don't want to go in. I don't know what we're doing this for. Um, but what else can I do? The you know, they'll impeach a, a president who runs. I mean, that was literally his. So there was, he wasn't suggesting that there was, you know, a concrete sort of um, tangible or measurable American security interest at stake in Vietnam as a place, but that there were all sorts of appalling consequences that would follow from failing to defend those boundaries. And, those, and the consequences range from, you know, his fears of, of loss of international credibility to, his, to the loss of his own political power. And so, you know, there are a whole series of levels of um, investment in, in this question that need to be disaggregated. When we're thinking about, when we're thinking about causation, we have to think about these men is not only agents of a sort of transparent, you know, transmitters or, uh, or a, you know, they're not, they're not simply transparently representing the interests of the state in any, in any simple way. They're also individual humans that have a series of agendas themselves. So does that, I mean, is this helping at all? Yeah, but I'm still not sure I'm convinced. Uh, and you and I talked okay. about this a little bit earlier. Yeah. So, uh, we talked, for example, about George Ball. 
and the importance that we both place in his descent, and, and I think we read that's a pretty good book that he's written. Uh, when he talks about this decision-making process, and he would agree with you that, that starting in about 64, the administration starts to recognize that there's not actually a physical threat, uh, that this domino theory thing really isn't that big a deal, but he talks about it as sort of a psychological international because it roots, it takes root in the idea of credibility. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, if Laos and Cambodia fall, we can make a stand in Thailand. That I, that interpretation of the domino theory would have been fine. When they realize that the fall of Cambodia and Laos aren't, isn't going to be all that devastating, the shift becomes, what about our international credibility? So we would agree there. But it seems to me that when I read the language of credibility and prestige and all those things that you're talking about, I still see them rooted in security and domestic politics. Uh, you bring out the example of Lyndon Johnson warning about what will happen to my administration. I agree wholeheartedly he's haunted by the, the question of Truman and who lost China. But what I don't see there, where is the question of, of masculinity and gender ideology? How is that incorporated in, in those questions? Well, I mean, at some level, you know, gender is a diffuse presence. Not a, you know, so, so again, I'm not trying to argue that there's a simple cause and effect relationship that, that's, that sort of says that ideas about masculinity are the cause. But what I'm suggesting is that these guys are socialized to understand the world in particular ways, right? And that, in, and that has included a long tradition of as what it amounts to a kind of imperial masculinity. And the, the, the irony, of course, is that no one could actually, at that time, acknowledged that this was an imperial project. I mean, empire was kind of a dirty word. It was what other, it's what other people did. It's not what we did. Um, and so that led them into some kind of interesting constructions. But again, at lunch, we talked briefly about this notion that, I mean, Vietnam itself was a, was a construction of this imperial project. Right? So we constructed a set of boundaries that had to be defended against aggression. And, and so, you know, this notion of the, the aggressor and the bully is, is absolutely key to, um, to say, to, to the way Lyndon Johnson looked at the world. I mean, he, he, you know, if you've read the stuff that he, I mean, he, he taught, it's full of this kind of talk about, you know, the, the fundamental lesson is that we stand up to bullies. And that, you know, he, he had a whole series of kind of standard tales that he regaled people with. One being that, you know, he, he, he construed international relations as much like a situation where if you let a man up on your porch, right, and you don't do anything about it, then the next day he comes back into the kitchen and rapes your wife. I mean, that, I mean, that, was, that was the image that he used to illustrate this problem. So what I'm getting at is that, is that there are, there were a, a whole series of conceivable ways of understanding America's role in Vietnam. That, 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 actually, at some level, one of those roles would be to understand that there was no role. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, you know, Vietnam is a place where you know there's a a, his, a, a society with a long history unto itself. Um, then a colonial, there's this colonial intervention uh, of, of France for, you know, close to 100 years. Um, and 
But these men, they didn't really know anything about Vietnam. What they knew about was how you react to threats. And that's where this, this, this notion that I'm talking about, I think, comes in. In other words, they, they brought to this, their notion of what leadership was, a vision of heroic engagement and struggle in defense of boundaries. And there wasn't very much thought about the actual implications of what those boundaries really were or meant. You see what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm dancing around this to some extent, but I'm trying to suggest that the way the, the way the question is construed means that we have to think about these underlying cultural structures that condition the way these people view the world. Yeah, I think it's I think it's it's fundamental, and I think what I'm doing is a little different from what Kristen is doing. I mean, one of the reasons I'm focusing on the you know the lavender scare is that is that here we have an actual model of reward and punishment that that, that occurs in a very in a very tangible sort of way, so that people that were construed as appeasers were also the, the syllogism or the equation was kind of like you know appeasement equals homosexuality it was it was that crude and that simple at some level so that so that um, the men that, that that made these decisions had had lived through that era which really wasn't so long ago you know I mean we're talking about a decade or less where there was a kind of systematic um, there, there was a discourse that equated appeasement and homosexuality, and then there was a, an institutionalized purge that systematically destroyed the careers of people who um, were seen as enemies of this of these right wing this, this right wing cabal in a sense, right? So that so that people like Charles Thayer, who was uh, you know in some ways he was an exemplar of of the of these ideals, actually, of aristocratic masculinity. You know, he had been raised in a certain milieu. He had had this diplomatic and military career. Uh, you know, he was a hunter. He was a sportsman. He was, you know, uh, he was renowned as a uh, as a woman, as a ladies' man in, in effect. So, I mean, he had all the credentials of of masculinity, but he was also tarred as a you know as a cosmopolitan international appeaser by the right wing and his career was destroyed so so I guess what I'm suggesting is that it's not only a matter of rhetoric but it's also a, there's a concrete institutional history of rewards and punishments that really plays out so that so that certain kinds of actions or certain kinds of ideas don't and so so when you in other words when you focus on the decisions in 1964 and 65 the point is that that context has already been structured by this whole earlier history, so that certain kinds of ideas or, or ways of conceiving of, of, of the nation interacting 
with this problem in Vietnam simply don't even arise. I mean, they don't, you know, they don't get considered. So Ball was really swimming upstream. You know, what he said was, well, we can pack up and leave, you know, and we'll come out better than if we go in and lose. And that was literally unthinkable to these guys. I mean, they, you know, if you, if you look at, I mean, if you look at the way the, the, the base went, nobody, I think, gave that a minute's thought, right? I mean, Bundy had already been, William Bundy had already been slapped down when he broached this notion of, uh, Daniel Ellsberg put it, you know, sh um, shooting your way out of the saloon. In other words, you know, the Bundy memo in 64 suggested that um, the United States might kind of provoke an incident and then, and then have South Vietnam invite us out. And, you know, he, he, you know, his career, I think, was really on the line for, you know, for a short period. And he just backed away from that entirely. And so when those 65 decisions came around, there was, you know, there were certain kinds of notions about a conceivable responses, you know, that simply never arose. I mean, you know, the context, the, the context was, was such that it was inconceivable not to, not to continue that, uh, that intervention. Mine is a sort of a an historiographical question, or a question of more historiographical continuity than historical continuity. Um, this sounds to me that the methodological approach, the idea of of looking at the the uh, cultural underpinnings, the cultural assumptions, the structures that you're talking about, sounds to me like a new take on James Dole's un unspoken assumptions. The idea that we need to look at the at the educational background, the ideological background, the social background, where these people, these decision makers, are lying in in uh, their their societal structures. This is something that, as I, I'm speaking as a Europeanist, not mm -hmm. as American, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is my question: Is this something that is new? This approach, something that's new to American diplomatic history? Not. I mean, it's as I think that the Europeanists in the room, those, the few Europeanists. Graduate students who, might, who, have, who have studied with both Carol and myself have had James Joel beaten into them, I think, and therefore, but see, I, I'm hoping, recognize the importance of looking at these structures. I understand the idea that, that looking at questions of gender and sexuality is something that is new on both sides of the ocean, mm -hmm. but, it's, but is the mm -hmm. idea of, of no. focusing no, on I mean, cultural... I no, mean, I mean, there certainly have been studies that, that, that look at, you know, I mean, to some extent, that look at the socialization of, you know, of, of elites. Um, I, but I think what I do, what, what's new is really literally looking at both the sort of the, the rhetorical construction of gender and sexuality in these people's lives and also the actual kind of class experience that they had in a series of institutions um, in, a, in, a, in a focused sort of way. Um, so, I mean, I really do, you know, in, in the book, I, I, I actually st start talking about this process with the founding of Groton School in 1884. I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that there probably aren't any other histories of the Vietnam War that talk about, you know, Endicott Peabody in 1884. Um, so, so it is, so it certainly is a kind of a, well... It's not exactly the long durée, but you know, I mean, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, 
I'm sort of taking a bigger chunk of cultural history and saying that all this context actually becomes meaningful, you know, later on. That 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 we can't simply look at this self this self-contained set of assumptions that structured the debate in 1964. That we have to actually look at, you know, how these people came to be there, what they've experienced in their lives prior to that point, and how all these kinds of things conditioned the responses that they that they actually made. Well, can I just um, write on what you just talked about? I, you know, while I welcome the, you know, the the complexity of causation, adding sexuality, gender, class, in the study of dip diplomatic history, I also wonder that at what point do we as professional historians have a responsibility to assign a hierarchy of causes? So when you talk about Finding of the school in 1884 as opposed to the historical context of 1964, which was more important? Well, actually, I sort of addressed that question, I think, in that piece that I that I suggested that that you read. I mean, I mean, part of this all has to do with, you know, what you're interested in, ultimately, you know, and what you find. I mean, I mean, ultimately, what we're doing is we're constructing narratives that are satisfying, right? And the reasons that they're satisfying is that they, you know, they address the kinds of questions that we've been taught to think are significant. It's, you know, I mean, so so what I'm suggesting is that that if your goal is to create a kind of instrumental science of policy that allows you to act in the world, if you if you're advising the prince, right, then then talking about Groton School in 1884 may seem utterly preposterous and and irrelevant, you know, because it really isn't going to add much instrumental power to the sort of technology of power that you possess. See what I mean? But if the question is understanding how our society got from here to there, and and you know and and trying to explain what could I think plausibly be described as a disastrous, you know, an ill-conceived kind of uh, intervention that did enormous harm to all kinds of interests and human beings. I mean, you know, a couple million in Southeast Asia and. It, you know, 60,000 or so Americans, you know, lost their lives pretty directly as a result of that. Um, then I think talking about Groton is not so preposterous. It doesn't have much instrumental value in, in the deployment of power as it's organized today. And if that's what you're after, then you probably don't want to go there. Yeah. Uh, another thing that people occasionally bring up, if you start looking at backgrounds so much and placing a lot of importance on the background with the prep school and the Eastern League establishment. How do you deal with somebody like a Johnson or Nixon who don't come out of that disparity of backgrounds? Well, again, I think if you if you if you read my argument carefully, you'll see that I'm not suggesting again that there's a deterministic process at work here. And that it, and I'm, I'm, so I'm not suggesting that it's Groton School or Choate or you know St. Paul's that causes you know this thing to happen. What I'm suggesting is that these are men who 
do have a series of agendas that, again, are kind of layered. I mean, we could conceive of these as sort of levels of, of investment and concern. I mean, you know, somebody who's, who's in a position of power, you know, obviously wants to, uh, you know, to achieve the ends of the state as he sees them, but he also wants to achieve certain kinds of career goals, right? I mean, in other words, he has an investment in the power of the state, and he has an investment in his own power. Um, and that there's a complex, you know, set of um, relationships that that these people. This is a very competitive environment. I mean, that's kind of one of the one of the arguments that I make here is that is that the decisions get pushed in a certain kind of direction in some ways because of all the other competitive pressures within that system itself. In other words, it, again, it's sort of the power of domestic competition that, that in some ways pushes these guys in the direction that they end up having to go, right? Because they've seen the consequences of, of, of appeasement or negotiation or, you know, softness toward communism. So Lyndon Johnson is, is a guy who's operating in a competitive political system. He also has an ideology that comes out of his upbringing in Texas. And if you actually look at him, you know, he's, he, he claims a heritage that stretches back to the Battle of San Jacinto, you know. And so the Texas Rangers. So he has this kind of model of, of, of imperial sort of racial expansion, you know, um, of, of Western heroism that in some ways it, it's cast in different terms, but it's not really very different from the kinds of ide the ideology of heroism and engagement and struggle that was typical of the boarding schools of the era when I talk about it. So, so what, I, what I see happening with Johnson is that he exists, I mean, his... His relationship is a very tense one with these people, you know, and there's a kind of competitive back and forth. Um, they're sort of egging each other on in a way. Um, you know, other people have asked, well, what about Robert McNamara? What about Dean Rusk? You know, um, these guys weren't part of this American elite. But there is also a pattern of, of assimilation to, to these values. And I think actually a lot of the figures... Um, you know, if you look closely at kind of how they did it, things like the Rhodes Scholarship, um, you know, that's one avenue that's... I mean, John J. McCloy, for instance. McCloy was um, the son of a hairdresser, you know, um, in Philadelphia. But he managed to um, insert himself, or she, actually his mother apparently, you know, worked on his behalf to get him to... He went to the Petty Academy, which was kind of a third-tier private school modeled on Groton. He went to Amherst and joined the fraternities. He went to the Plattsburgh training camp. So, so again, what happens is that, you know, that this elite class really was um, eager to assimilate talent, you know, talented strivers. Um, so, so we, you know, again, I th I'm not trying to argue that this is an inflexible kind of hereditary caste system that has no room to accommodate um, you know, people who assimilate to these values, because in fact, you know, many of the powerful figures came from that kind of that kind of background. Does that help at all? Oh, yeah. Okay.
Actually, I think there's like a lot of fascinating possibilities. Um, I mean, I at one point thought about doing a study of um, Cuba and the U.S. I mean, kind of looking at sort of competing masculinities of ideology, or I mean, ideologies of masculinity. You know, the, in other words, you know, sort of Castro, I mean, Castro's response, I mean, or Khrushchev, I mean, any of these characters, I mean, I mean, gender structured their ideas of how to respond to threats and how to respond to the world and created a certain set of possibilities, opportunities, constraints, and so on. Um, and I think actually that would be, a, they're, they're fascinating opportunities. Um, if you can get access to the kinds of materials that will sort of tell you what you need to know, that's the real, you know, that's the basic question. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it would, it would be possible to do a real comparative kind of study that that might be very revealing. We're talking about uh, a specific discussion, um, the ball of the Senate in 64-65 a while ago, and, and how basically his position from the point of view of the others around the table is something that this was a position that remains and does not hold. Is that a fair characterization? Well, ultimately, I, th I, th I, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that's what it boils down to. Okay. Yeah. So, do you see, in terms of the discourses of the other of the other national security participants, any sort of memorandum, anything like that, which sort of emasculates the his position papers, or even takes Paul to task specifically um, as being somebody who's unmanly? He's not really pushed out right away. It's a few more years, like the administration. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that. I mean. You know, whether or not he was pushed, I don't know that I'm in a position to really argue that. I mean, I, you know, one argument might be that he saw what a, the disaster that was evolving and decided to kind of cut his losses. But if you look at the way Ball argued, he, well, actually, it's not only Ball. I mean, my, what I, the sense that I got in looking through this material was that there, there was a kind of a, there was an obligatory obsequiousness, in a sense, that one had to adopt. You had to preface all your remarks by saying, all right, I'm going to broach these dangerous, critical notions. But at the same time, if you decide to do something really stupid, I'm with you all the way. I mean, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, again, I'm putting my spin on this. But, you know, in, in order to retain power in that context meant that you could not, for a moment, suggest disloyalty. I mean, that was, as, well, you know, Richard Barnett talked about this years ago in, in, uh, um, in the roots of war, you know, he talked about how in this, in this, in this cultural, in this, you know, context, the, war, the, the most serious offense was disloyalty. I mean, it didn't matter if you did something stupid or even criminal, I think is the way he put it. The point was that you, that you couldn't, that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't talk about it on the outside. And so that was... If you look at this thing, I mean, I mean, you know, Hubert Humphrey wrote these letters to to uh, to Lyndon Johnson that that I think really ticked off Johnson. But I mean, the language is always, well, I'm going to say these things and they're disturbing, but they don't for a minute mean that I'm not going to support you all the way, whatever decision you decide to make. And so that's how you kind of get around that question. Um, 
does that does that help at all? It, it, it starts to. So basically, you didn't articulate it as well as I could have. Um, I'm really interested in as they're critiquing the ideas themselves, uh -huh. they're doing it, it specifically using discourses of that you could tie to masculinity. Well, sure. I mean, well, not so much the sexuality. I mean, I don't want to overplay that that dimension. But I mean, what they're saying is what they're saying is. Um, that our credibility is at stake, right? And that, and we're in the world, and that, and that by, you know, by failing to defend these boundaries, um, you know, we're going to undermine all kinds of things that we have at stake um, that have to do with um, our ability, really, to, to hold on to power in the, in the, uh, you know, in a domestic context. I mean, that's ultimately what it boils down to. But, but it's couched in terms of honor. It's t couched in terms of credibility, um, and these kinds of abstractions that don't really talk about concrete consequences to any particular sort of material or strategic interests that are actually at stake. There is a counter narrative, and I don't know where I can put this um, well, clearly, but surely by what is it, 67, when LBJ is desperate to make peace? in Vietnam, and he reaches out, I mean, I, I've seen some of this, and I've been reading this book like I do, the Soviet Union, and it's role in this, I mean, these guys are also trying to make peace, and trying to get people to help them, they've reached the limits of their, what, economic, and military, and other kind of power, and how do you recognize that? You know, that's going on at the same time, I mean, some of this is quite agonizing, can't get the South Vietnamese to the peace table. They can't do this. They're desperate to get. I, I was at the LBJ library, and at one point I counted there was something like 40 or 50 messages out to heads of state all over the world trying to get them to do something to help us. Mm -hmm. So, how mm -hmm. do we do that? And, and we could even take this a little further into the year of detente, you know, where tough guy like Kissinger is. You know, on the one hand, rather tough, but on the other hand, you know, the whole thrust, if you will, you know, is, is, is really towards creating a, a less aggressive and more, almost a Metternichian kind of form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the two things are, are happening at almost the same time. Well, first I'll make a confession, that is, and that is that, you know, I haven't pursued the, the Vietnam question since I finished that book, and I, and I, and I cut it off. You know, my argument really stops, and once the once the big decisions to intervene are made, you know, I don't really, I didn't do another five or ten years of research in the archives to kind of, you know, to, 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 to disaggregate all that stuff. Um, so actually, your thoughts may be as important as anything on this. I mean, how you how you read this, but you know, I'm not sure that I see that as well. You know, even in sixty and 65, LBJ was agonizing over this question. And that's, see, that's the part that I find sort of striking, is that I think, in a, in a, in a sense, he understood what a disaster this was likely to be. I mean, that's kind of my argument in this book, is these guys never predicted victory. I mean, that's the irony, right? They, they, never, they never really thought they were going to pull this off. They had to do it anyway. You see what I mean? They had a definition of what victory would be. Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, victory 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, victory would have been, you know, preserving the South Vietnamese fiction, right? I mean, that was that was what victory would have been. But what I'm getting at is that is that these people are profoundly conflicted because they're not really stupid. You know, they're not stupid people. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. And they had information that suggested to them that this wasn't going to work. And yet they went ahead and did it anyway. And so, I mean, that's kind of the, that's the how do we explain that? Right. I mean, what how do people get so invested in this notion of defending this fiction that they commit this this massive atrocity, ultimately, you know, and in, in, in an utterly futile sort of atrocity, I might add, really. It, I mean, I think despite, um, you know, Rostow's Rostow's, you know, attempt to rehabilitate the enterprise. Um, and so what I'm suggesting is that that they that there were very powerful kinds of of ideas at work that threatened their very core if if they were to fail. I mean, at, at a whole range of levels, at a sort of individual level, per, sort of personal identification, at the level of their role as bearers of state power, and and so you know. Certainly, they were confronting the, the, the evidence of, of failure by 1967. You know, I mean, McNamara was breaking down in tears in public. You know, um, he was saying, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop this. We've got to stop this. And yet they didn't. I mean, see, that's the other thing that we have to confront is that to end the war in Vietnam, one possible solution would have simply been to end the war in Vietnam. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know. This notion that, that Lyndon Johnson, you know, really wanted to make peace, I think, is one that we have to fundamentally question. Well, what does that mean? What kind of peace? I mean, couldn't he, couldn't Lyndon Johnson ultimately have said, okay, it's time to get out? I mean, it, the problem is it would have been an enormous humiliation, right? It would have, it would have threatened his very core to simply say, okay, we lost. You know, I was wrong. This whole enterprise was misguided. We've committed, you know, I mean, he wouldn't even necessarily have to say this, that we, you know, that would have been implicit, though. We've committed these horrible crimes. Now it's time to get the hell out. That didn't happen, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, this, this logic that I'm talking about still played out over the next, I mean, you know, Richard Nixon inherited it, you know, and again, we, what do we do? Well, we change the color of the bodies and we bomb our way out. Married a couple times, a couple actually. Yeah. I just wondered if you, if you get a sense of, um, you know, are, are there diplomats who are actually more pursuing pursuing marriage in order to save their career? Do you have any, any sense of the really personal relationships that are going on behind the scenes? I know that's stuff that's really 
It is, yeah, yeah, oh, are, yeah, well, I'd like to hear what you come up with, actually. Um, well, you know, um, I haven't done a great deal of, of research on the Moscow Embassy itself. I mean, Frank Castigliola's worked on that whole angle a lot more than I have, and so he's really the guy to talk to about. He can tell you some stories. Um, but, you know, I there isn't really very much... Um, Number one, in this story, women don't play a big, they're not very visible. I mean, in, in any sort of, as active agents, you know, they, they really are sort of visible as props. Um, and yeah, well, you know, the famous case of a homosexual that I talk about in my book, marrying, you know, for, for publicity purposes is Joseph Alsop. Actually, I mean, he's you know he's not a diplomat. He's certainly a member of the establishment, um, but you know he gets um, systematically blackmailed. You know, he's he's photographed in these compromising positions with another man in Moscow in 1957, and then he goes to um, you know to Charles Bolin actually and says, you know, this is what happened. What do I do? And Bolin kind of you know rushes him out of. Russia and 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 tells him to go to the CIA where he and, and the FBI. So he sort of fully confesses and you know lets everyone know what's going on. And then of course J. Edgar Hoover uses that information then to try to well to pressure you know also for years afterwards, including trying to spread scurrilous rumors about um, Martin Luther King and so on. But in I think 1960, also married the widow of his, one of his Porcellian brothers, you know, from, the, from, from Harvard. Um, you know, this guy had died, and so he, he, he puts it really oddly in his, in, his, in his, you know, autobiography about, I stepped into the role of husband and father, you know. Um, it really, and so, again, you know, when he wrote that book, he wasn't acknowledging I'm a closeted gay man. You know, that was something that you, you can only read into it retrospectively. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the actual sort of sexuality, I mean, one of the things that people always ask me is, you know, were these, who was really gay and who wasn't? You know, and I don't really see that as a particularly salient question. I mean, I, mean, it, I think politically it's a very important, it, it became an important question, right? I mean, it structures the politics of the time. I can't tell that it has anything at all to do with, with um, any of the political content of the imagination of these people. You know, in other words, I mean, Alsop was a rabid anti-communist. I mean, he was a hardcore, um, you know, he was a hawk in every possible way. Um, whether or not that's related to the fact that he actually also was a closeted gay member of the establishment, you know, I mean, that, there's room for speculation there, but I don't have any way to to make any concrete connection. Um, you know, Charles Thayer was a guy who organized paramilitary incursions into the Soviet Union after, you know, shortly after the end of the Second World War um, with the OPC. You know, so, I mean, he was deeply involved in these kind of militant anti-communist efforts. And so whether or not he had sex with an Afghan boy in, you know, 1937, I don't see as really a very salient question about the content of his politics. But, they, but, it, but then, ultimately, the point is that it did become a hugely important political question. 
right? When for other reasons, you know, there was a systematic attack on what he represented. Yeah. Well, on that question then, uh, October 1964, Walter Jenkins, yeah. OBJ's widely acknowledged right-hand man, is arrested at the YMCA for homosexual activity. The chairman of the Republican National Committee, Dean Burge, tries to make a political issue of it. Nobody cares. Completely washed over. How is that? Well, it's actually, you know, that's the way the story has sort of been written, but it's not quite true. It, 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 it was front page news for until the election. I mean, if you actually look at the newspapers, which I did, I mean, you know, they're well, big headlines. Newspapers, you need to sit on it for a day. When for a day, yeah, while, while Fortis. Newspapers willing right, to right. keep this story silent. Well, for a short time. But what I'm getting at is that is that if you actually read the newspapers, what you see is that they're front page stories in the you know the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the New York Times. I mean, I mean this wasn't a, this wasn't even a back page story. This was a front page story. Um, so the, so really the question is, you know, why did it not have the same impact? And and that's a good question. I think there are several arguments that you can make. Um, one is that times had sort of changed. I mean, I mean, um, some people, you know, Walter Lippmann and others, spoke out and said, you know, this is a scurrilous strategy on the part of the Republicans. It's reprehensible. Um, and, and a lot of other people sort of said, you know, th there had been, I think, the additional development of a kind of therapeutic culture, you know, in American society. And so, so the arguments were, you know, this is not really an absolute moral problem, you know, in the sense that it had been construed earlier, that in fact the problem is that these people are, and, that's, and that was the approach that the Johnson administration took, right? They, 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 you know, they hustled them off to the hospital and, and you know, and, and barred access to Jenkins so that he couldn't be, and, and they depicted this as a medical problem, right? This is, they medicalized it in a way that wasn't possible. I mean, the Truman administration tried that. I think if you, you know, if you read that couple of chapters that I'm talking about, I mean, the Hoey Committee, that was the Truman administration's first instinct was to say, okay, what we need to do to diffuse this problem is to construe this as something that is a question for medical experts, right? Um, but the Republicans, of course, didn't want to go along with that. You know, they said, no, this is sin and this is security, right? These are the things that, that, that threaten us. Um, and that, that simply didn't play as well in 64. The other, the other really crucial issue is that Walter Jenkins was a close friend of J. Edgar Hoover. And so, and so I, I mean, frankly, I think it's probably that's as big a factor as anything, is that the sort of the fundamental political alignments. And Barry Goldwater as well. Well, Goldwater was associated. He had, been, he had written the fitness reports. He had re written the fitness reports. And so, well, what you see actually, again, if you go back and look at the, at the, at the news coverage, is that Goldwater posed, you know, on the high road. And so what he did, he limited himself to a few vague comments about the curious crew uh, in the White House, right? But he didn't make direct attacks on Jenkins. He left that to his flunkies, like actually Richard Nixon pitched in, the vice presidential candidate, Miller, uh, and others, Dean Birch, obviously. I mean, I mean, those were the flunkies that were sort of deployed to, to try to stir up the dirt. And it just it didn't work. And, and I suspect that, you know, it's a conjunction of changed circumstances and then a fundamental political realignment on the part of the FBI. Because, I mean, if you, look at the, if you look at the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, it's J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI who are the motor behind it all. I mean, those are the guys who have the resources. They can dig up the dirt and they deploy the dirt. Everyone else is, in a sense, 
I mean, not entirely, but can be seen as a kind of a tool of, of Hoover. You started your remarks this afternoon by talking about the debate within the field of diplomatic history between those who favored and those who disfavored the cultural approach. I'm wondering what you think about the future of the field and whether that point of discussion is still a point of discussion. Are um, cultural and gender-based studies here to stay, or is the pendulum going to swing back toward a more traditional form of diplomatic history. So you're asking me to make an oracular pronouncement. I am indeed. <laughs> uh, you have an audience of graduate students who are thinking about dissertation yeah. topics, and yeah. they have to decide which fork in the road right, to take. Right, and, right, uh, right. I'm asking you to give them your input on, on which way to go. Sure. Okay. Well, my, my oracular pronouncement is to ignore that question. Um, I, mean, I mean, at some level, it's very difficult to to do a compelling project on the scale of a dissertation or a book. I mean, it requires kind of enormous commitment, energy, dedication, time, money, everything else, right? So, so it seems to me that the thing you should do is pursue what you find most compelling. Um, I suspect that, 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 that Cultural approaches to diplomatic history are not about to displace the, the other kinds of ways that people do diplomatic history. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. And, you know, I think there's enormously valuable being, work being done in a lot of different ways. So, as far as, I don't know that I'm really even the person to talk about, you know, for career strategies. I'm not sure that I'm a, I'm a great example, you know. Um, but... At an intellectual level, you know, the rewards that you get from doing this kind of work, I think, are, are can be quite high. And part of the part of what makes it exciting to do it is that you have to read a lot of different kinds of things. So that may be one way to help make to help you make a decision, right? What do you like to read? If you like to read enormous piles of diplomatic history, and that's all you want to read. Then, that then doing a kind of cultural argument may take you in directions that you don't want to go. If you get an enormous charge out of reading a lot of different kinds of history and figuring out how you can use those ideas to pursue the questions that you're interested in, then this kind of thing may be, you know, very suitable and productive. And as far as you know, what are hiring committees going to go for in the next, you know, five, ten years? I don't know. Do you have, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> well, how would you counsel your students? That's probably the best question of all. Probably, He's the guy to listen to. They've probably heard my counseling already on a number of occasions. Uh, I'm actually not sure, but I actually suspect on that latter matter that you brought up, uh, search committees, that in the larger profession of historians, outside of diplomatic history, there's probably a much greater expectation, not just an acceptance of, but an expectation of a cultural type of approach. And uh, I'm almost afraid that if one is too limited to the traditional kind of diplomatic history, one might have a hard time getting acceptance in the larger community, meaning getting a job. Well, that, that, op that opens up an opportunity for me to 
sort of boast a little bit, and that is that, um, I mean, one of the things that I really have been gratified by in retrospect is that all kinds of people are using my book. I mean, it's appearing in diplomatic history seminars and, and even undergraduate classes, but it's also appearing in various kinds of political science courses, American studies courses, gender studies and sexuality courses. Um, so it's, it's clearly a politi- you know, sort of American political history. I mean, people are, people are using it you know, in, in those kinds of places too. So, so what I'm getting at is that um, it crosses, it, I mean, I think it really does, in effect, cross a lot of boundaries. I tried not to think. I mean, I've I've actually had a sort of a fraught and somewhat ambivalent relationship with the label diplomatic historian. I mean, I think it's one of the things I do, kind of, you know. But I also do lots of other stuff too. And um, and in that sense, it's kind of gratifying to know that you know my book is being used by, at least in one seminar, at Virginia by Melvin Leffler, uh, and also by George Chauncey in a kind of history of sexuality seminar at Chicago, right? I mean, that's, I, I, I suspect that my book is the only one that is common <laughs> between, between those two places, right? Um, so I find, I mean, I find that kind of amusing and also gratifying at the same time. So, I mean, that's, again, that, you, I think students need to ask themselves, you know, what's really going to fire their imagination and allow them to pursue this really quite difficult and trying task with, honestly, a rather uncertain, in a statistical sense, the sort of outcomes are rather uncertain for anyone who's doing history professionally at the, at the doctoral level, right? I mean, we, I just read that perspectives issue that came out a couple, you know, in January, I think, right? Um, so you've got to care about what you're doing. I would just say, as someone who teaches at a non-research Broad training helps me get a job at a smaller school. And so this diplomatic history means also women's history, ability to teach the U.S. survey, Latin America field, that kind of broader, so broader reading, broader training, if, um, if that's the kind of job you want Other questions? Let me try one more. Can you just talk about the types of sources you use for Imperial Brotherhood or, or your other work? Um, did you look at the same sources that people who wrote traditional histories looked at and just found different meanings to the words? Or as uh, Andrew Rotter once said, you know, the minutia and the margins is often as significant as what was on the formal paper? Or do your sources range into materials that diplomatic historians normally have not looked at? usually have not looked at? Well, that's a, it's hard to say, I mean, to encapsulate it. I've looked at kind of a wide variety of things. Um, I mean, there's a a sort of a prosopographical dimension to this book. And so, you know, one thing I did was I did a lot of secondary readings and biographies. I also looked at manuscript collections that um, I don't think would, I, or at least I looked at parts of manuscript collections that wouldn't necessarily be part of a traditional kind of policy focus. If you're doing diplomatic history, it looks at a sort of 
demarcated set of events and you're trying to create sort of proximate, ex, you know, causative explanations. Um, you know, I looked at a lot of other kinds of materials that don't really fit into that model. Um, I also, you know, for the Vietnam stuff and for a lot of the Kennedy administration chapter, you know, I looked at what were what would be entirely conventional kinds of manuscript or, you know, the you know, the presidential papers, uh, presidential office files, um, you know, area files, all the kinds of things that, you know, you would expect to see. Um, um, I also looked at uh, the tremendous amount of State Department, FBI, and, um, and presidential library stuff for those Red Scare or the Lavender Scare chapters. Um, I suspect that very few diplomatic historians have actually been through that material. In fact, only a couple of other historians at the time that I was looking at them, I think, were, were using those, David Johnson being one of them. Um, so, you know, Bureau of Security and Consular Affairs stuff um, was one, one important source in the State Department. And, I mean, it's Record Group 59, you know, so in that sense it's entirely traditional. But it's material that, um, well, it's, I, you know, as far as I know, nobody else has used it, right, because... Because I haven't seen, you know, I mean, David Johnson's the one now who's, 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 you know, a couple of years after my book came out with an account that overlaps quite a bit. And we, it was entirely independent. I mean, I didn't really know about his work until a conference actually at Chicago, um, you know, a, a year or so before my, you know, after I'd done all the research. Um, and let's see, what else? What other kinds of materials? Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, you're asking me, a, one question has to do with how do you limit a study? You know, I mean, and unfortunately, you know, this was originally a dissertation, and then it was, there was a lot of other research that was done after the dissertation stage. But, but, you know, I was constantly kind of professionally under the gun to produce something. And, you know, I think all the graduate students, especially those that are working on dissertations, are going to be able to empathize with this problem. I mean, there is a practical question of just what you can include and what you can, what you have I mean, to exclude. Just conceptually, I mean, if you had you know, time and world and all of that, you know, given the fact well, that you know, frankly, to come back to Ryan's question, I'd rather read what Fidel Castro had to say, okay. you know, or what or what you know Nikita Khrushchev had to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be, I think, in some ways. Provide a higher level of payoff in terms of understanding ideologies of gender in a comparative sense than reading the British ambassador well, stuff. Friend, but friends can also pick up. Things. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're sort of posing the fact that the, these folks were living in what they considered an antagonistic world, but but we need friends, even very male males need friends and have to relate to them in some ways. And you know, the way we, you know, the way our leaders treated the British and the Germans during this period. Oh, sure. Is extraordinarily revealing. I've seen this from the German side. Again, you know, tiny nothing world to do all of these things. Well, I, I think I think what you're pointing out is that again, if you think about problems of gender order, it's they're they're profoundly they're they're present everywhere, right? I mean, sort of evidence that speaks about it if you know how to look for it. 
And, and because of that, you face a particular problem of demarcating narrative boundaries. I mean, how do you decide, you know, where you stop? This was a, frankly, this book was quite difficult, right? I mean, it was quite difficult in that there really weren't any models that, that I could follow. I mean, I didn't have a template. So I had to kind of construct it as I went along, and I had to make a set of, I, you know, there, there's always an element of kind of groping blindly in the dark when you do these things, you know? And, and, so, and so I did have to kind of make some arbitrary, there's a, you know, I have stacks and stacks and stacks of material that, that you know, there's no evidence that, that I looked at any of that stuff. I mean, there's lots of material that I, that I went through um, and then kind of distilled it into this particular argument, right, which I thought gave it a certain sort of logic and shape that, um, I, I mean, you know, again, my critics, you know, even reviews where, um, that I'm very pleased with in many ways, a recent one by Ruth Feldstein, from, you know, who, who, who wrote a view, review that I think is quite perceptive. She took me to task, as others have, for not talking about race and how race constructed masculinity and so on and so forth. Well, at the abstract level, I think she's entirely right, you know, that race is an element that is in some ways analytically, or, or I mean, it, 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 it's, it's implicated in, in all these cultural configurations that I'm talking about. At the same time, I made a conscious decision when I wrote that book not to talk about race because that's something where there is a literature. And, I mean, there is a diplomatic uh, historical literature that talks about race in one way or another, right? So there are already a few stacks, you know, there's some small stacks of books that you can, that you can address to deal with that. So I thought, well, if I'm doing this other thing, um, if I add race into that mix, then that adds another five or ten years, you know, maybe, or and, and another couple of hundred, well, or another 350 manuscript pages. Do I want to turn in a manuscript that takes 15 or 20 years to produce and uh, is 700 pages long, or do I want to, you know, I mean, it just, it wasn't something I thought was practically feasible. So, you know, we all face these problems of craft. I mean, I don't think they're, they're just inescapable. And when you, when you choose to do these really ambitious kind of difficult and diffuse kinds of things that you have to make those hard decisions about how you shape the project. So I've talked to a couple of graduate students here who are doing, who are embarking on really ambitious, I mean, they're in the very early stages of very ambitious and what sounds to me like wonderful projects and they're going to be facing exactly these problems, you know. I mean, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you muster what is necessary to practically realize this, this you know, project? And, and that sometimes means that you have to make conscious decisions to kind of lop off things that, that are very attractive and even conceivably, conceptually important to the project, but you're going to, you have to put them aside and do them for the next book. Well, I think it's time to adjourn to a reception just out the door in the atrium. But before we do that, let's give Professor Dean a Please stay and enjoy some refreshments and uh, informal conversation.